Hi everyone, we're back and so happy to be here. Today kicks off season four of the PQI podcast with a great episode. This week, we sit down with Dr. Mikhail Sekris to discuss his latest book, Drugs in the FDA. Dr. Sekris is professor of medicine and chief of the division of hematology at the Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, and former chair of the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee of the FDA. Okay, thank you so much, Dr. Sekris, for joining us on the PQI podcast today. So to start out, will you please introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background and your current role? Sure, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm Mikhail Sekris. I'm chief of the Division of Hematology at the Sylvester Cancer Center at University of Miami, and I'm a professor of medicine here. Um, I, uh, prior to coming here, I spent 18 years at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. My uh, specialty is hematology oncology, of course, with more of a focus on hematology. And I specialize in treating older adults with acute myeloid leukemia and in myelodysplastic syndromes, so cancers of the blood and bone marrow. Wonderful, thank you. So how does the weather in Miami, I have to know, compare to Ohio? Well, I will cop to the fact that uh, having been here for two years, I still check the weather in Shaker Heights, Ohio, where I used to live every day, and maybe share a little bit of joy with my wife <laughs> about <laughs> the weather in Miami, particularly in December, January, and February, uh, compared to what we live through in Ohio. Yes, right now I know we're we're recording around Christmas time, and I know here in North Florida it's going to be in the twenties, so pretty pretty chilly for us. But I think nothing like um, the rest of the country still. So it's a good a good move you have. Thank you. We think so also. And then you are here today because you recently released a book titled Drugs and the FDA, Safety, Efficacy, and the Public's Trust. What is the premise of this book and what was your reason for writing it? So, well, thanks for for asking and and actually thank you for reading the book as well. Um, I started to think about writing a book about the FDA almost a decade ago. Uh, I had the privilege of Uh, being a standing member on the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee of the FDA, and I actually chaired that committee for two years. And it's it's an absolutely fascinating process to serve on an FDA committee and watch almost in real time um, how the FDA makes some of their decisions and what leads to those decisions. And I was part of ODAC uh, when we made a particularly controversial decision and that was around the breast cancer drug Avastin. Um, And uh, we were part of a couple of committees that considered Avastin and not whether or not to recommend accelerated approval for Avastin, but actually whether or not to recommend that the FDA withdraw the drug from the market. And at the time I came out of those proceedings thinking to myself that I had witnessed something really special. And I thought about it and thought about it for years and whether the recommendation of whether or not to remove Avastin from the market was the ultimate demonstration in how well the FDA works or in how well it doesn't work. And I actually was, was waiting to see if somebody else would write a book about this because it was such a monumental decision. And more recently we saw another FDA committee meet to vote 
to whether or not the FDA should withdraw the approval of the drug McKenna, uh, which was approved to prevent preterm deliveries. And it was the first time that a similar occurrence uh, had taken place of a company actually refusing to withdraw a drug from the market since the Avastin hearing. So the first time in a decade that this has wow. repeated itself. And all of this came together to me thinking, gee, maybe it really is time to, to write a book about it. And that's what I did. Well, I'm glad you did. It was definitely interesting. And we'll get into more of some of the history parts on it. But it it wasn't just a like a boring history book. Like it, it kept it came alive, I feel like, and really kept your attention. So but we'll talk more about that shortly. Um, but I would love to discuss some of the concepts from the book. So you just mentioned ODAC, but what exactly will you tell us more about ODAC? So what it is, its purpose, maybe even how you became part of it. Yeah, so ODAC or the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee uh, is a group of people who are hematologist oncologists who are brought onto a standing FDA committee to literally advise, that's the A part of ODAC, it's an advisory committee, to advise the FDA on whether or not the balance of safety and efficacy of a drug should lead to that drugs being approved by the FDA for marketing purposes. In other words, whether people in the United States um, can use the drug and whether uh, physicians or advanced practice providers can prescribe the drug. And um, ODAC is, a, as I mentioned, a panel of hematologist oncologists but it's a panel of people who don't necessarily have a specialty within the disease that the drug is designed to treat. So for example, as we were convened to talk about the breast cancer drug Avastin, I'm not a breast cancer specialist. We started this interview by my saying that I'm a leukemia specialist, yet I'm a hematologist oncologist and therefore can, can at a basic level understand some of the safety and efficacy data to make a recommendation to the FDA. And I was recommended to be on ODAC, I think from a couple of sources, one were previous ODAC members whom I knew, um, but also I chair the medical advisory board for the Aplastic Anemia and MDS Foundation, which, a, which is a patient advocacy group for patients who have bone marrow failure conditions, including myelodysplastic syndromes. And they, advocacy groups can actually write into the FDA and make recommendations for future ODAC wow. members. I had no That's idea. Cool. That's very cool. Yeah, it's really neat because one of the standing members of ODAC who's a voting member is a patient representative. And so I was recommended for that. And, I, and the FDA reached out and said, you've been recommended to serve on ODAC. We're interested in, in interviewing you. Can you send in your CV? So I, I did that. And then I was invited to FDA headquarters to give a talk to FDA members, which is a little intimidating, right? Yeah. Because uh, yes, <laughs> you, think you know a lot about a drug until you present it to the FDA, and then you're like, "Oh my God, I hope I don't sound like an idiot when I'm doing this." And then after that, I had a panel interview, and then an individual interview with Rick Pastor, who still heads the cancer branch of the FDA. That's and I remember, he took me. He, he was my lunch interview, so he took me down to the FDA cafeteria. And as we're waiting in line with our trays to, to, to buy something, he turns to me and he says, now, as a government employee, remember, I can't buy you lunch. So you're on your own, <laughs> but you can always submit for reimbursement to the government. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> You'll be happy to know as a taxpayer, I, I spared you the expense of the sandwich that I bought that day. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and I sat and talked with him and, and, you know, we had a really honest conversation about um, ODAC and about the FDA. And he in particular wanted to bring me on because I have a, a master's degree in uh, epidemiology with a focus on pharmacoepidemiology. So he thought that would be a neat bent to bring to the committee. And I remember saying to him, um, you know, there are times that ODAC votes against a drug and the FDA votes no to, to not include a, a, a drug on the nation's compendium. Um, do you ever feel bad because sometimes that vote can lead to a company going out of business? And he, he kind of shook his head and, and smiled a little bit the way he does, if you know, if you know Rick, and said, you know, investors aren't stupid. He said, if a drug works really well, particularly early in its development, investors will know that and they will invest a lot in a company. So if a company goes out of business because of a no vote on a drug, you can bet that that drug doesn't work very well. And that's the reason the company is going out of business, that investors knew that also. Okay. So it was kind of an interesting take on things, right? In that one statement, he brought into it the fact that the FDA is well aware that there are huge financial implications for the decisions that they make, that drugs are big business, but also that they take the emotion out of it. It's all about the drug and all about the science and ultimately about the safety of the public. Yeah, I mean, I think that's good. I It would be hard for me to take the emotion out of anything. So, and then I know, especially reading, um, and you'll have to read the book to find out all about this, but some of the arguments that you heard in the trial, I just think it would be very hard to, to remain unemotional during all of that. And I know you touched on it. What are the benefits that you are not um, a specialist in that disease state and you evaluating the drug? So why do you think that, that that's a good thing that you may not be a breast cancer specialist? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think you could argue this either way. On the one hand, you could say, gee, you should have breast cancer specialists on a panel that's deciding the fate of a breast cancer drug, because who knows breast cancer patients better than breast cancer specialists. But I do think there's a counter argument to it. And I, I kind of paint this scenario within the book. Imagine that you're an oncologist and you're sitting with a patient and you, you have the awful conversation that we sometimes have to have that there aren't great treatments left for that patient. And I, I paint the scenario of a young woman with two kids who has breast cancer and we've reached the end of the line. And I start to go into this conversation about whether we should be focusing more on quality of life and the amount of, of days that she has left on this earth. And in this pretend conversation, I have her saying to me, um, basically, I want other options. I want to see my kids grow old. You come up with another option. Now, if you have a breast cancer drug like Avastin that was demonstrated to have a progression-free survival initially of six months, but then, then shrank to just a few weeks and has no overall survival advantage over anything else out there and has no quality of life advantage over anything else out there, you may still want that drug in your toolbox to put off this awful conversation for another few weeks, right? Yeah. If you're not a breast cancer specialist, though, you may have just enough remove 
from that particular conversation that you can objectively look at the data and say, well, no, there's no survival advantage or quality of life advantage. Why should we approve this drug? The other reason you may want some removed from that is that as, as much as we struggle to avoid anecdote in guiding our practice in hematology oncology, it's inevitable that sometimes it will sneak in. So for example, let's say that I was a breast cancer doctor and the week before the ODAC meeting, I prescribed Avastin and my patient uh, developed liver failure and sepsis. How do you think that would influence my vote the following week on the drug, right? I would probably have this awful anecdote fresh in my mind and I'd be more likely to vote negatively about the drug and to say, wait a second, this is terrible side effects to it. On the other hand, what if I were a breast cancer specialist had prescribed Avastin and I saw one patient five years in follow-up who was still in remission and had a fabulous life and had just traveled to Morocco and back, right? Then I would go into that proceedings and say, wait a second, I just saw this patient who had this incredible outcome on Avastin. How can we remove this drug from the market? So I do think having a hematologist oncologist who understands the basics of how cancer drugs work and the endpoints that we focus on and what's meaningful, but not a specialist allows just enough of that remove to be more objective in making a decision. Great points that you make there for sure. And then I I loved the book uh, because it gave not only good insight into the Avastin trial, but it also gave a really great history of the FDA and a lot of things that I never knew before. I think all of the pharmacists are going to love it. And we, we've since found out that your wife is also a pharmacist, so I'll have to get her opinion on it after the podcast too. Um, but will you give us just a brief overview of some of the history points the book touches on? I know you can't go fully in depth to them and a peek into your research, including the purpose and the mission of the FDA. Yeah, so it's funny, I was writing this book and a lot of this was new to me and we aren't taught this history in medical school or if we are, it is a an asterisk and a subnote of some other text that we're reading. Um, I talked to my wife, who who is a pharmacist. She she got her PharmD at Purdue and then went on to be a specialist in, in infectious disease um, at Cleveland Clinic for uh, for a while. Um, and I was going over these stories, and she said, "Oh yeah, we learned about these in pharmacy school." So well, apparently, mine did not. <laughs> <laughs> or well, I'm just old, and my memory is gone. <laughs> Got to go back and be a boilermaker then. So it's funny, right? I think the education on this is a little spotty and certainly in medical school, this is not a standard part of the curriculum. Um, What I learned as I was going through the history of the FDA, I realized that the FDA is always going to focus on safety, safety, safety first and foremost, because that was its actual genesis. And, um, you know, progress in in regulation on food and drugs um, really began Uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, um, the early 1900s. And every single time there was major legislation that went into effect to define what the FDA was going to do, it started with a tragedy. Um, In the early 1900s, there were 22 children in St. Louis and in Camden, New Jersey, who fell sick with smallpox and diphtheria. And they were given vaccines to treat those conditions. Um, But uh, unbeknownst to everyone, those vaccines themselves were contaminated with another deadly toxin, tetanus. 
and those 22 kids died. That the uproar that resulted from that led to Congress passing the Biologics Control Act and soon after the Pure Food and Drugs Act. Uh, but those acts were limited in scope and, and drug safety was still left up to the manufacturer. So then it wasn't until the 1930s when the S.E. Massengill Company in Bristol, Tennessee um, was developing an antibiotic, uh, sulfanilamide. And, and antibiotics were really at their um, genesis around the 1920s and 1930s worldwide. Um, but the S.E. Massengill Company wanted to tweak sulfanilamide and make it uh, more palatable and put it into a liquid form, particularly so it would be easier for children to ingest. So they experimented with additives that they could put into it, including raspberry extract, saccharin, caramel, and ultimately the sweet tasting solvent diethylene glycol, uh, which we more commonly refer to as antifreeze. Mm. They put it I... into this. And um, of course, safety wasn't a requirement yet. So in September of 1937, they distributed 240 gallons of this stuff around the country. And before long, within the next couple of months, reports were coming in of adults and children dying. And in all told, 71 adults and 34 children died from taking the tainted antibiotic. Uh, this led the FDA to mobilize its force around the country to try to recover all the remaining sulfanilamide. Um, and honestly, the, the response from the company was fairly anemic. Um, where they sent out a kind of a generic letter saying, oh, you know, we need to recall some of this antibiotic. And it wasn't very forceful in saying, wait a second, people will die if you give this drug to them. Uh, and the FDA was really irritated about this. And then, you know, when this came to light, the CEO of S.E. Massengill kind of had a sanctimonious response to it and saying, well, we did what we were required to by law, right? We didn't have to test it for safety instead of saying, oh, my God, we've killed people. So the FDA was ultimately able to recover 234 of those 240 gallons, um, and this is what led to um, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that was signed into law in June of 1938 that for the very first time required that drugs be safe. Later on, of course, I think all of us are familiar um, with uh, the thalidomide tragedy. So thalidomide was developed um, by um, the uh, Grunenthal company in Germany um, as a sedative that could be used in uh, women who were pregnant, particularly in women who were pregnant. And at a certain point in some companies, it actually was outselling aspirin for how popular it was in Europe. Um, reports started to come out about children being born with, with birth defects. Actually, the very first report wasn't about a child with birth defects. It was about um, a patient taking it who started to experience some neuropathies. Uh, and that was published in The Lancet. But these reports weren't reaching the US. At the same time, the um, Richardson Merrill Company in the US wanted to distribute it around the US. And a brand new FDA employee by the name of Frances Olden Kelsey, um, her very first assignment at the FDA was to review thalidomide's application. And she, isn't that amazing, right? Her very first that assignment is, as an FDA employee. Her first assignment. And she was concerned because the stuff she was getting about thalidomide was, you know, a little too good and a little too sparse. Um, so she really wasn't getting any information about toxicities. And what she was getting were essentially individual testimonials from doctors who said it was a great drug. So she kept asking Richardson Merrill for more and more data, and they kept kicking the can down the road. 
and started to complain to her bosses because they wanted to get this drug on the market before December because Christmas was their big month for getting sedative hypnotics to people. I mean, makes sense, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're in the Christmas season right now. If you haven't finished your holiday shopping, you kind of understand. You do, you do. <laughs> so she waited long enough, and there's this amazing story that I tell in the book about the individual people who went and finally made the association between thalidomide and birth defects. And it was a pediatrician in Germany and a, a lawyer whose child had just been born um, with um, focomelia, with, with the shortened arms, um, who go around in the lawyer's beat up Volkswagen around the country finding these kids uh, who have birth defects and finally tie it to thalidomide. So the end of the story, of course, is that, um, you know, Oldham Kelsey delayed long enough that the reports finally started to come out from Europe about birth defects, and she single-handedly averted a tragedy in the U.S. Um, and then there was a senator from Tennessee, Estes Kefauver, who kind of capitalized on this and said, wait a second, we don't have things in place to protect the health of the public, never mind require that drugs actually be effective at what they do. And he built on this outrage in the US at the, at the tragedy they we had just narrowly avoided to move forward legislation that finally required that drugs be effective and that were signed into law by President Kennedy in 1962. So that's some of the history that leads into it that the fact that drugs have to be safe and effective it's a relatively new concept in drugs um, and always born out of some tragic event. Sad, but yes, I, I just found all of the history and I, I'm sure we did touch on some in school, but a lot of the stories, personal stories that you had behind different people really brought brought it to life and made it more interesting. So, and it is, it is unusual that it's a relatively new concept that something needs to be safe for you to be able to take it or even effective. It's kind of crazy. That's amazing. And then in the book, you also tell us that only 14% of all drugs and clinical trials win approval from the FDA and only three to 4% of invest investigational cancer treatments ever get approved, which seems just extremely, extremely low. Um, so what does that mean for manufacturers and patients and what happens to all of these unapproved compounds? You know, one of the one of the things that I hope that people reading uh, drugs in the FDA take out of it is just how complicated a process it is. Um, it isn't as if a genius is is in the lab and one day just discovers a new drug that's going to cure cancer. It takes a lot of trial and error, a lot of failures of these drugs, and a very low return rate for manufacturers of these drugs. Um, so it it takes a while, uh, years even, uh, even with more sophisticated uh, computer modeling of potential efficacy and, and safety of drugs. It takes a lot of trial and error, a lot of failures, uh, and eventually a very small return rate of drugs that make it to the market for patients. What this means is that it can take years, um, years and years, a decade uh, to bring a drug uh, to market. Uh, and it kind of gives the explanation for why we need a mechanism through the FDA like accelerated approval uh, to try to figure out a way to get drugs, particularly highly effective drugs for conditions for which there are not great alternatives to market even faster. Um, when some of these drugs aren't approved, um, they can go to areas of the government like 
um, CTEP uh, for experimental drugs, and people can use them for experiments in other indications, and maybe some drug that was left behind might be useful for patients in another indication. So not all is always lost with the, the unused compounds. No, not all. And there are libraries that are kept of these compounds that uh, are screened for new indications uh, and new ways of applying the drug even uh, that may turn out to be successful. And then you just talked about accelerated approval. So I would love to jump to that. Um, how did that accelerated approval process come about? I know you talk in the book again about um, AIDS drugs and really AIDS having a lot to do with that process. So will you tell us a little about that? Sure. Well, I, you know, I was writing this book during the pandemic and actually during the first year of the pandemic. So reading about um, the genesis of HIV and AIDS in the U.S., uh, really hit home on a number of different levels. Um, at the time, you had an infection of unknown source um, with some wild speculations of how it ever made it out, just like we saw with COVID. And um, people weren't sure how it was transmitted, just like with COVID. And you didn't have any available therapies as people were dying in droves, just like with COVID. So for me, it really was meaningful to look into the HIV AIDS movement of the 1980s and the incredible activism that was born from that uh, of uh, particularly groups like ACT UP that were moving against a recalcitrant government and at the time a president who wouldn't even mention the word AIDS out loud for a couple of years. And um, their actions, I think, really wrote the playbook for patient advocacy for years to come. And one of the things that came out of this activism was a demand that the FDA develop a mechanism to bring drugs to market quicker for desperate patient populations who had no good alternatives. And that was the case with HIV and AIDS as it went from the 1980s to the 1990s when the very first drugs were approved, things like AZT, DDI, etc. So that's where accelerated approval came from. And you can see if you go through a list of drugs that have been approved under the accelerated mechanism, the first few years were a lot of HIV and AIDS drugs. And then gradually you start to see cancer drugs creep into it. And then for the first time in 2008, the majority of accelerated approvals were for cancer drugs as opposed to any other indication. 2008, ironically, was also the year that Avastin received accelerated approval. So, you know, I talk about this activism, this incredible activism that led to something that was very, very positive, finally, um, and also in the context of the fact that as we were at the Avastin hearings, there were breast cancer activists who were protesting the proceedings that were going on and were very, very vocal within the proceedings themselves. So what are some of the other success stories? I know there, there's one big drug that you talk about in the book um, being a success story that's more maybe more in your realm of expertise. Um, what are some success stories of this accelerated approval process? Uh, sure. Well, in my area of expertise, leukemia, the biggest success story uh, was imatinib or Gleevec for the treatment of chronic phase chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, that drug was such a success story that it actually made it to the cover of Time magazine. And 
this is an incredible story in and of itself. I talk about it in a little more detail in a, another book I wrote uh, called When Blood Breaks Down, which is really a, a little bit more about the history of leukemia and treatments for leukemia as it follows three patients through their stories, one of whom has chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, and this is a drug that was initially identified by a guy named Brian Drucker when he was a postdoc in Boston um, and into the beginning of his career. And he, he identified it through drug screening uh, where he ran tests uh, first in test tubes and then in mice, uh, mouse models of chronic myeloid leukemia and found this drug worked incredibly well, but had to make the case that with a drug company that treating a boutique indication like chronic phase chronic myeloid leukemia, which only affects about 6,000 people in the US per year, was actually eventually going to be profitable for the company. Um, in the meantime, he was actually kind of asked to leave his job in Boston because he couldn't get funding for this research. Wow. landed at Oregon Health Sciences University in Portland, and that's really where he made his seminal discoveries and introduced this drug into a phase one slash two trial. And in that trial, over 90% of patients entered a hematologic remission, patients who had had CML for years and for whom other drugs hadn't worked. And about 50% of those patients actually achieved a cytogenetic remission, meaning the actual genetics of the leukemia were undone by this drug. That led to accelerated approval in record time for the FDA and the confirmatory trial um, uh, did in fact confirm that incredible benefit of imatinib uh, within the next two years. So that's one of our greatest success stories. It's now with follow-up studies, it's now morphed into a story of how people who achieve this kind of deep response to imatinib have a life expectancy that's the same as age-matched folks who never had a leukemia diagnosis at all, right? It is a truly modern-day miracle of therapy, as much of a miracle as the mRNA vaccines for COVID, right? That that have arisen and have saved also hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of lives around the around the world. Yeah. So that's a great success story. We have other success stories in accelerated approval in cancer, including checkpoint inhibitors for conditions like melanoma, which is why former President Jimmy Carter is still alive, despite having melanoma that went to his brain, and checkpoint inhibitors in hematologic malignancies like lymphomas. So we do have these amazing success stories from accelerated approval. We also have some failures. One of the tenets of accelerated approval is that a drug will be brought to market quicker based on an interim marker that is reasonably likely to translate to a clinically meaningful benefit. But it requires that a follow-up study be performed to confirm that initial benefit. So let me let me let me unpack that a little bit. Um, I think an, 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 a benefit that's hard to argue is if a drug improves someone's overall survival. That's a clinically meaningful benefit. Somebody lives longer. And in kind of casual terms, the FDA will talk about drugs that allow people to live longer or live better. So does it allow somebody to live longer or does it improve their quality of life enough that they live better? With accelerated approval, you could approve a drug based on, for example, duration of response for somebody with cancer without yet demonstrating that that means they're going to live longer. As long as you have a follow-up study that shows ideally that people actually live longer with that drug, or at the very least, that that initial duration of response is just as long in a follow-up study, right? So it's an interim marker. Right? You can't say it's not all the time that a response rate or duration of response translates to an improvement of overall survival, but you can reasonably say 
that somebody who has a longer duration of response or a longer progression-free survival is going to live longer, yeah. right? An interim marker that's reasonably likely to translate to a clinically meaningful benefit. But like I said, not always do those interim markers mean that someone's going to live longer or live better. Yes. Thank you. And I have 3,000 other questions and could talk to you for two hours, but I know, I know we have to wrap it up so everyone will just have to, to read the book. But I did want to ask you um, one more question. So our audience is largely made up of the medically integrated oncology team. Um, and I just wanted to know what you would most like the healthcare team to know regarding new drug approvals. And I also left off a question about real world patients. So read the book to talk about real world patients because I really thought that part was interesting as well. But just what, what would you want the team to know most? So thank you for, for um, asking that. It's, you know, as I think through this book, you know, if you're, if you're asking me what is like my one takeaway take phrase, drug approval is hard and it's not linear and it's not always black and white. It takes a lot of years, like you pointed out earlier with drug development. Um, it takes dedicated researchers like the one I described, Brian Drucker, who discovered and moved forward uh, imatinib for chronic myeloid leukemia. And most importantly, it takes dedicated patients who are willing to volunteer their time and sometimes their lives to clinical trial and drug development. If I were to talk to a healthcare team about this, I'd love for them to recognize just how complicated it is to get a drug approved and also to recognize that not every drug approval is the same. And I wish, if I had one wish for the FDA, it's that when they have a drug that's approved under accelerated approval, they included a big fat asterisk on the label. And instead of saying this drug is just as safe and effective as anything else that's out there, they were to say, this drug was approved in an accelerated fashion. That means more data yet to come hold on to your pants. We may have to pull this drug from the market because it didn't work, or we may change this label to say, you know what, it worked even better than we thought. I think that's a great, a great final thought. And I think that would probably help a lot of patients and the team, you know, just to be reminded of that and see it all the time that maybe, maybe it's not false hope. Um, or maybe things, like you said, could turn out even better than you think they're going to. So I think that's a great point. And then I do want to find out too, where can we find your book? Um, and is there is there another, I'm adding our, when blood breaks down, I'm adding that to my list now. Um, so what's, what's next as well? So um, the book is located anywhere you buy your fine books. I always try to support our local independent booksellers here in Miami. That's the bookstore Books and Books. Uh, and in fact, um, the daughter of the owner actually works uh, at Sylvester Cancer Center yeah. with us in programming, which is really cool. So we get to talk books when everyone else is talking cancer. Uh, <laughs> Good thing. And, um, you know, I continue to write essays for the lay press. Um, I'll have a piece coming out in, uh, well, by the time you, you broadcast this, I'll have a piece that will have come out in the Washington Post talking about clinical trials and looking at it from a patient perspective and how we think about side effects in clinical trials. Um, and I'm working on a couple of concepts for a new book I'll get back to you about. Okay, very good. Well, when that, when that happens, we want to know and we'll have you back on the podcast. Okay, um, thanks. 
And then I have one final fun question that we ask all of the guests on the podcast. If you could have dinner with anyone living or in history, who would it be and why? And then also, I always have to ask, what would you have on the menu? Because that is the most important thing. I think. So. Well, um, you know, because my wife may be listening to this, I have to say I would want to have dinner with her because I love her so much. Oh, good answer. <laughs> All right, now the real answer. So I <laughs> you can come too. <laughs> it's a couple dinner. How about that? <laughs> um, you know, we're actually rewatching Game of Thrones with my son, who's now old enough to be able to watch it. So I actually, um, in the past, wrote an essay where I said it would be Tyrion Lannister with a fine Dornish wine accompanying the meal. Oh. Um, I think if it were an an author of a book, it might be Juno Diaz. Um, my favorite book of all time, I think, is The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, uh, okay. where he talks about uh, kind of a Dominican-American experience and it has a magical realism in it. And he writes the way I wish I could write. So I would want to have that meal with him. I would want to have it over some um, Latin American food, because I think that would be appropriate, especially yeah. given that I live in Miami. Yeah, uh, and good. I would want to try to get his secret to writing. I think that's a great choice. That is a fantastic. Um, but thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. You've been wonderful. Everyone check out the book. It is fabulous and it'll be a great read. And again, thank you. Thank you for all that you do for patients. And even, I mean, you're, you're serving us all nationally. So thank you for that as well. She was well, thank you so much for having me on the program. These were just amazing questions and I appreciated it. Thank you for joining us for the start of season four of the podcast. You can find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, and Encoda.org. That's N-C-O-D-A.org. You can also find us on Instagram at the PQI Podcast. We hope you tune in next week for another edition of the PQI Podcast. Thanks, everybody.